We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Marina Abramovich is one of our greatest living artists, a woman whose work explores presence, pain and possibility. Her performance art invites us to question both the limits of the body and the unquantifiable nature of the spirit. Over the past 50 years, Abramovich has pushed herself to extremes of physical and mental endurance. Perhaps her most famous piece of art was staged in 2010 in New York's MoMA. For eight hours a day, over a three-month period, she sat still and silent and invited members of the public to sit opposite her. Some stayed for five minutes, others for an entire day. Some cried, others smiled. It attracted over 850,000 visitors, among them Lady Gaga, who brought the artist's work to a whole new generation of admirers. Abramovich was born in 1946 in post-war Yugoslavia at the beginning of President Tito's autocratic communist regime. Her parents were strict, her father was a military general, and Abramovich had a 10pm curfew well into her 20s. Her art became her escape. She painted from the age of 14 and won a place at Belgrade's Academy of Fine Arts before moving to Amsterdam in 1976 and meeting the West German artist Ulai, a man who would become one of her most important collaborators in work and in love. Last month, her exhibition opened at the Royal Academy in London, the first solo show by a woman in the RA's main galleries. This major exhibition presents key moments from Abramovich's career, some of which will be reprised by the next generation of performance artists trained in the Marina Abramovich method. I don't do things I only like, Abramovich says. I do things that are difficult. I am curious. Freedom is the most important thing for me. 
to be free of any structure that I can't break. Marina Abramovich, it is my honor to welcome you to How to Fail. What wonderful introduction. And still I'm alive. You are. <laughs> you, get, you get this kind of instruction, you know, when you die. <laughs> That's really great. What I can do for this program for you? Oh, well, first of all, you are here, which I feel so honored because I feel that I am getting a reenactment of the artist is present right now in front of me. So that's all you have to do. And I'm going to ask you about your self-perceived failures. But before we get onto them, I want to ask you about that idea of freedom being so intrinsically important. Do you think that comes from having had such a restricted childhood, both in terms of the state and your family life? I really think that, you know, in my family, everything was hiding and it's, there was no really truth. You know, I, I, it's so many funny stories, you know, from my mother who wake me up in the middle of the night if I don't sleep straight and I sleep too messy and then I have to wake up and make my bed and go back. So when, you know, I got such an incredible control over my sleep, then now when I go to hotel, I just open the cover and I sleep and people don't even know I was there. And I'm <laughs> disciplined, become embodied. Mm. And But, you know, in the beginning, I rebel everything. But then later, Later on, I was actually very grateful for this discipline because discipline, willpower, and determination of what I've been doing, it was a key to performance art. I could never do what I've been doing if I didn't have this kind of background, which I rebel at the time, but then, you know, I actually appreciate now. And then I come from a very strange background, you know, on one side of my grandmother who hate communism. And till I was six years old, I spent the entire time with her, you know, doing rituals, Orthodox church, you know, and being with somebody who is very highly religious. And then going back to the parents, which are communist artists, and a completely different upbringing. So my father will really love everything about Russia, Russia literature, Russia poets, or music, cinema. My mother, it was all about French, the French literature, French fashion, French everything. And then, you know, from all of that, I'm kind of a mixture between the grandmother and my parents. And then in all of that, i just been interested in Tibetan Buddhism. So you can imagine what kind of mix I have, you know, in all of this. You have spoken in the past about not having children. And I also don't have children. And how, if you had have children, that would have imposed mm. strictures again on your art. Yeah. Can you tell us about that decision? Was that something that you always knew? Yeah, but this actually relates to the first question about freedom. I absolutely have to be free. I didn't want to have any restrictions of any kind, not from the first, from the childhood, from the parents, from the grandmother, from the society. And then, you know, in any other way, you know, I'm just thinking how was important decision not to have children, because, you know, you have only one energy in your body. And if you really want to do something completely and totally dedicated, you can't separate yourself. You know, you so many wonderful women Women who start being great artists and then actually, you know, have children and completely abandon career or change career or doesn't can put that much energy. But you know, lately thinking about this because now I'm in a completely different age, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know that if I was wrong, but there are some women who actually did it with all the children. Just recently, I actually found the Mary Mary Strip. She had five children. From these five children, the four of them are actors, and I just went to 
see the Chekhov actually played by their children. And she came to see it. And I was thinking, how she made it. Mm. How I mean, she's an amazing actress. And she really have the children who also the actress. And somehow everything works. In, in my case, would not. I'm too passionate about what I'm doing. And what I'm doing, it was everything. The art was everything to me. And what you do requires such commitment, bodily commitment. I am a huge fan of your work. So I am going to geek out a little bit. I want to talk to you about Rhythm 10 with the knife and the attempt to replicate mistakes, because I think it goes to the heart of a lot of what this podcast is about, whether we learn from mistakes, whether we are forever condemned to replicate them. But tell us what it was, in essence, what you were doing. It was a really simple piece. I had the 10 knives, two tape recorder. And I was in front of the public doing this Russian game when you stop your knives between your fingers as fast as you can. I put one tape recorder on and I take the first knife and I do as fast as I can. And when I cut myself, I change to second knife till all the ten knives, you know, was there. Then I start to rewind the first tape recorder, listen to the sound, put second tape recorder on and take the, the same knife from the first part and do the same game and try to concentrate to actually made the same mistake again and I only missed twice in all this game and the second tape recorder I put on after which actually have the double sound with the you know repeating the mistake and I was thinking and this was idea how I can actually put two times together with the mistake past and present and they just you know listen to that sound it's very interesting that my first performances was always relating to sound through sound I actually you know, get into the body. So the first pieces was called rhythm five, rhythm four, rhythm two, rhythm zero, and so on and so on. It was always sound very important. This performance was so fatal. It was lots of blood, by the way, at that time. But also this was the performance when I understood the importance of the public and how I can never do performance without public because if I will repeat any of these pieces before, I will never do them. But in the front of the public, I can use energy of the public actually to get this extra extra kind of strength to finish the work. But I also wanted to liberate myself from the idea of pain because pain is something that, you know, in our human life, we are afraid of suffering or pain or dying. This is three things that I'm always interested in, how I can stage them in the front of the public, how I can use energy of the public, go through this through this process and liberate myself from the fray, from this fear of pain. But in the same time, show to the public that if I can do this in my life, I become the mirror they can do in their own. Wow. What's your relationship with pain now? Because you were telling me before we started this interview that two months ago you had an embolism and so you came to London, you can't fly, so you came by boat. Are you at peace with the idea of pain? You know, I really, really somehow can say that I master physical pain, which I never can say for mental pain. The emotional pain is something that is almost impossible, but the physical pain is possible. You can enter into the pain and you can liberate yourself of the fear of pain and accept the pain. You know, I just had a you know very simple operation of the ligament on my leg, which caused incredible kind of, they call saddle embolism, that you actually die from it. They go straight to your heart. And I had the three operations. I have eight blood transfusions. I was, you know, six weeks in intense care. 
And then I get out. And the doctors say, it's kind of a miracle. But I use everything I know about performing, everything I know about the controlling the breathing, about the pain that I can get out of this. And now, as you see, I'm in front of you. I'm walking. And I make all the steps because you don't have elevator, which is not easy. I know. There are so many steps to get <laughs> to the studio. Not easy at all. You... <laughs> but I did it. I'm relieved. Thank you. Rhythm Zero, that was the other one that I want to talk to you about from your work in the 1970s. This was a piece of art where you left out 72 objects and those 72 objects included a whip, a gun, a rose, a thorn. And you invited over a six hour period members of the public to use your body and those objects in ways that they wanted. What did that experience teach you about humanity? The show in Royal Academy start with the two pieces. The show in Royal Academy is not chronological. The first piece you can enter is Artist is Present. A second piece is Rhythm Zero. And they are both pieces connected, which I'm just going to explain to you shortly. But the first piece, really, I was 23 years old and I was angry. I was young and so, so angry. Why I was angry? I was angry because performance art didn't exist as a form of art, completely ignored and incredibly attacked as a masochist, as a sadist, as a bullshit, the people who do performance art should be put in mental hospital and so on. There was no place for performance art. In those days, the same kind of position was video and photography, but very soon video and photography become mainstream, but performance art really didn't. So I was thinking, what if I absolutely do nothing and put all these objects on the table, including pistol with one bullet. And, you know, if you're 23, you're ready to die for art <laughs> at that time. And I put this statement on the table, I'm an object. You can use anything you want from the table, including pistol and bullet, and I'm taking all responsibility, and this is six hours. And this was like a very bold thing to do. And the public in the beginning was playing with me and, you know, giving me the rose and kiss me or whatever. And then later on, because six hours is a long time, become more and more kind of open and more and more aggressive to the point that they would cut my clothes. They would take thorns of the roses and, and stab into my body. They would cut my neck and still have scar, drink my blood. They would carry me around half naked. They would put me on the table and stab knife between my legs. I think that it was happened all in Naples. And it was interesting, the stereotypes that was actually creating on me at that time was three stereotypes, mother, Madonna, and prostitute, exactly these three. And one of the reasons they didn't rape me because they, there was a normal opening and people came with their wives, so they didn't expect anything like that. But the liberty, it was incredible. And another thing was of the, of the public doing things to me, but it was interesting that women will never do anything. They would tell men what to do. And they will just take the handkerchief and kind of whip the blood from my body or the tears. Also, they play with the pistol, but somebody took pistol away from another person and threw it out of the window. And I remember when six hours passed, it was two in the morning, the galleries came and said to me, it's over, because I was absolutely there, static. Whatever you do, I accept it. In that moment, I start walking towards public to leave. And this was the first time that I become me. And the public literally ran out of the door. And nobody wanted to confront with me. I was brought to the hotel and I look into the mirror and I see a piece of gray hair. It would just, I literally got gray hair. And I really was thinking, okay, I know now, yes, public can kill you. If you give them elements, they can kill you. 
then passed 30 years later and came, you know, artist is present. And an artist is present, I restrict public completely. Public can't touch me, can't talk to me, can't do anything. The only can do is to have gaze, eye gaze, and as long as they want. And this was incredible. I understood in this period of time that how the public, you can low spirit of the public or you can highlight spirit of the public. And artist's presence was everything about, you know, highlighting spirit of the public because the eyes, you know, the door of the soul. I learned so much in the meantime. And one thing that artist's presence is one of the most difficult performances I've ever made in my life. Much more difficult than the Rhythm Zero. It was six hours. This was three months. Eight hours a day, but the Friday was ten hours. The museum is open even longer. So I really understood that it was incredible. It was more difficult than anything I'd done. But that it was really about lifting spirit of the public on a different level. And I can only do this performance when I was 65 years old. I could not do anything earlier. I didn't have this knowledge. I didn't have this determination. I didn't have the willpower. I didn't have concentration because you have to be here and now all the time. It was really incredibly important that my age, that I could have that wisdom in order to make this piece. I'm going to ask you what now sounds like an incredibly basic question. It's whether you have more hope in humanity or if you are more optimistic about human nature or pessimistic, given those two such profound experiences, do you think we are mostly good or mostly bad? Or you know, is there no you know uh, what happened in Artists is Present, which didn't happen in any other performances in my life, something that I don't want to call a religious experience because I don't like religion. I like spiritual experiences. Religion for me is to do with institution and power and corruption and whatever. But I really had something which I can call unconditional love experience, that I felt profound, unconditional love for every human being sitting in the front of me, which I never saw in my life, from child, old woman, the young man, whatever, anybody. It was this heart opening, which was, I never have anything. That really profoundly changed. I think that I have hope for humanity more than ever. And I really think that what we need to learn is how to change ourselves. It's all about us. You know, it's so easy to always put the claim to government or the this president or that person. And we never look ourselves. Is us who have to change. If one person we change, he can change thousands just with his own example. And this was something that I learned in this piece profoundly. There is one snippet of video from the artist's present that went viral, uh, where you are reunited with your collaborator, Ulai. And I know we're going to speak more about him later as one of your failures. It's an incredibly beautiful series of moments where you reach across and you take his hand and you cry and we see all of the emotions, all of the feelings that are encapsulated in everything that you went through together. And I wonder if I could ask you what was going through your mind when that happened? You know, first of all, Ulai was invited to be my guest of honor for the show. And I absolutely didn't expect that he would sit to be as audience and I never break any rules in my life. I'm incredibly strict with rules. 
And when he came out of blue and sit there, it was 12 years of our life in front. You know, we split in the walking Great Wall of China to say goodbye. It was very big love of my life. And being there, there was no rules anymore. He was somebody who was part of my life. And this is why I put the hand and hold his hand. And this was incredibly emotional. I, I just lost it, you know. It was, and I think that why it's so viral and so many people look, because it's truth. You know, truth is something that touches. Public understand when something is fake. You know, you have to be real. And this was more real than anything I can even imagine. You know, and he now passed away two years ago, you know. So we have one room here in Royal Academy dedicated to him. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, we're going to talk more about him. I'm so sorry that he's passed away. You shared a birthday, the 30th of November. Yeah. yeah. And you were twin souls in so many ways. And I wonder if you still feel that twinning, even though he's no longer here in a physical sense, do you still feel his spiritual presence? You know, our relation was just not easy one. You know, it's not like all the roses. We had a great love. We have great hate. We had a huge court case, which yes. I lost completely, you know, which I want to kill him. And I was really angry. And then finally, Something really incredibly important happened. You know, when you say, oh, I forgive somebody, it's one thing is easy to say, but it's very difficult to really do it, really with your heart. And I think, actually, two of us, after court case, after we stopped talking to each other, after all this mess, we actually came to the point to forgive each other, mm -hmm. and we did. And when that forgiveness happened, then really it was incredibly beautiful relationship till, you know, till he died. And I'm so happy that I actually understood what forgiveness meant. We'll come back to him and we'll come back to the Great Wall of China later. Let's get on to your first failure, which concerns a communist parade. So what happened? You were a young girl. And you were marching in a communist parade. Wait, 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 wait. First, I wanted to ask you the question. Yes. I want to know why you actually doing this questions on failure. I am so intrigued. Can you explain oh, to me background? <laughs> yes. I want to know. Thank you so much for asking. The background of this podcast came from feeling like a failure in my own life, where I was about to turn 39 and the decade of my 30s had been one of immense transition where I had got married to the wrong person. I had tried and failed to have children. I'd got into a new relationship. And then that one ended brutally for me just before I turned 39. And although I had had some professional success and I was working as a Sunday newspaper journalist and I'd written a couple of books, I didn't feel that I was living my purpose. And I didn't feel that I was where I wanted to be personally. And I felt like a total failure, according to the life plan I thought I had had for myself. And so then I wanted to have conversations about that, about how other people got through failure. And I realized through those conversations that I was having with wonderful people and friends of mine, when I looked back at those failures and those moments of pain, I had survived them all. And that made me feel really strong and powerful. And so I thought, well, actually, maybe there's a way of redefining what we perceive of as failure as something that, if handled correctly, can show us our true purpose and kind of illuminate our path forward. And that was the start of the thinking. 
And I was listening to a few podcasts at that time to help me through my heartbreak. And I realized that this form enabled that sort of intimate conversation because very like your work, we are present. I am present and I can speak and ask the questions that I want. And all we have from the guest is their words and their presence. And there's something very beautiful about that because I'm not editing anything. And so I decided to launch a podcast. I drew my own logo. So that's that's a bit of Elizabeth Day art on the, <laughs> on the microphone. And I launched the podcast and it's ironic that a podcast called How to Fail has become one of the most successful things I've ever done. But I think, as you were saying, it's because it's about truth. It's about unraveling this projection of curated success that so much of society is now about and talking about the things that make us vulnerable and human. And so that's the story behind it. I love, this is the one of the reasons that I wanted to do this with you, because the failure is a big deal in my life. I love the whole idea about failure, because for me, if you wanted to go to unknown territory, the place you've never been before, you have to also have the factor that you can fail. Yes. And this is kind of wonderful. Exactly. And then let fail, and then stand up, and then do another another fail, and stand up and do another fail. You know, my biography, which is also translated here in Britain, is called Walking Through the Walls, because I literally walk through the walls. I, I see the wall, then I break it, and then another wall, and I break that wall. But also, you can find on the end that you completely misjudge everything and you're kind of really in total shit. But that's incredibly powerful thing mm-hmm. because that experience, you know, is transcendental. They bring you to stand up and try again and try again. To me, the one of the greatest stories of the failure is the story of Columbus, which I like so much. And I always remember that, you know, Columbus was sent from the Queen you know, of Spain, to find a new route to India for the spices. And nobody wanted to come with him for the simple reason that the idea was that earth was a plate and you can fail off the earth. Mm. This was, to me, incredible, fail off the earth. This is more crazy failure than just go on the moon with all this equipment and science now is easy. But that was something different. So the only people who want to come with him, it was the convict from the prisons. So they opened the prisoners and give them to go with Columbus. So Columbus arrived to the little island called El Hierro. And this tiny island, they had the Last Supper before they take this journey. I'm always trying to invent and imagine that supper, eating that last meal that you can actually fall from the earth. Fall from the earth where? Into nothingness. And they take this trip and oops, they find America. And that's the thing. If they never make that kind of journey, they will never find America. The failing is essential for actually discovering and for discovering the new ways and then creating something which never nobody ever done. So this is so important. So I actually give you three examples of very funny failures for me. You know, the, the now I'm thinking that actually maybe I should give you different examples, but you know, now we have three of them. We, Let's talk. we can we can talk for hours. We can go be I know you need to go back and install your show, but we can talk about other failures as well. But first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for that transcendental moment. I didn't know that story about Columbus. And you're so right. Failure is all about discovery of new lands. And sometimes the most surprising and most powerful territory you discover is your true self. And you're absolutely right. We're of the same mind. 
that you can't have an adventure without taking the risk that you might fail. No. And you know, there is a funny Japanese business book, the advice to businessmen. You say the, the amount of success in your business have to be reciprocate to the amount of failure you're taking. Because yeah. you have to risk. And that's the whole thing, you know. And that to me is a big deal. I've been teaching for a long time, not anymore, but I teach. And what I was doing to my students, I will ask them to buy 1,000 sheets of paper and have a little table and little basket for the rubbish. And then every day, at least for one hour, to write the ideas. The one, the ideas they like, they put on the right side of the table. The ideas they don't, they put in the basket. And then after three months... I don't look the ones they like. I'm not interested at all. We go into look in the basket. And that's what they reject. They are the ones who are fail. They're really afraid of doing it. They are the best ideas. The that's one, amazing. The one in the basket. And that's what we should do. We should always look in our basket. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. We should do the things that we're fearful of. Yes. That we think we can't do. Oh, gosh, I wish I'd met you years ago. You could have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Well, let's talk about the failures that you have sent me. And if you decide, I like them because I think you are such an impressive figure for so many of us. And these are failures that are humorous and that make you so human. And the first one concerns this communist parade. Yes. So it takes us right back to Tito's Yugoslavia and you were in a communist parade. What happened? First of all, with that time, I'm talking 14, 15, I don't even remember. I think I was like 15. I look very tall. They call me giraffe. I had this big nose, a very short cut hair, really ugly, little pimples. I uh, had the flat shoes, so I have to have orthopedic shoes, which are really ugly, and they're made communist way. And then my mother, in order to have them very solid, like she would make the little metal part in the front and in the back look like horse kind of shoe. So when I walk, you can hear me for miles that I'm arriving, which is really horrible, and thick big glasses, that, because I didn't see anything. 
Anyway, this is how I look. So now our school was chosen to do the parade for the Tito, which is like a huge thing. It's always 1st of May, and then, you know, you have to kind of parade in the front of the Tito as the best school of that year. And we was marching for almost a few months to train. You have to do together with the, with the drumming and you have to do exactly the walk and then you have to look to the right and smile to Tito and then look to the front, all of the very, very strict directions. So that morning that I was, we got Gatcher before we going to get this parade, the part of this metal thing that got detached and the piece of my leather sole actually got loose. And when I was doing this parade in the morning, just before we start real parade in the front of Tito, I was going flip-flop, 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 flip-flop. And they look at me and say, you out. I was, I was so ashamed. And I was so incredibly felt that it was the biggest failure that I'm not able to march in the front of Tito on this parade because of these stupid orthopedic shoes. And I remembered incredible unhappiness and crying for weeks because of that. So this was like really little failure that I remember the first one that I could not deliver what I was expecting to deliver. So interesting that then the context of your thinking changes, but also the context of 20th century history. And so bizarre to feel, looking back at that young Marina Abramovich, that the thing that upset her the most, that is still in her mind, <laughs> almost seven decades later, is failing in a communist parade. In the, in the communist parade. And yeah. then immediately come the next failure. The next yes. failure is, you know, I was very intellectual and very kind of, I was president of chess section in our school, chess sports, the game, and our school win, and actually my section win. And we were so proud, and I was chosen to go to the stage with all schools together, huge, huge auditorium. It was the, the biggest in that, and the first of the biggest now, I'm used to, not that time, that I have to go, again, the same orthopedic shoes, same look, you know, and all of this, and incredibly, I was so incredibly shy. I could not believe that I became a performance artist later. I was so shy. I have to go to get this chessboard from my class. And that bastard, whoever was giving me this chessboard, he was just piling one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I don't know how many, and I was holding them very carefully, and I turned to go off the stage, and, you know, I, the I don't know whatever happened with the same shoes. I slip and I fall down and all chessboards just go on the, with incredible sound and all the things fall off. And entire auditorium love. I mean, all of them. This was the funniest. This was like a slapstick. This was like a, you know, like Tom and Jerry. This was like, a, you know, whoever, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton scene. And I go off the stage and not getting out of home for one month. <laughs> so you felt shame and embarrassment. <gasps> incredible shame and embarrassment. And I, it's incredible. And that shame and embarrassment that I could not even walk on the street if somebody's behind me because I felt I would kind of slip or do something wrong. So from that moment to being in the front of the public and doing performances, it's a huge step. It's astonishing. It's incredible. I, I'm impressed by myself because then I was painting and the painting you're very protected in your studio. But I remember the moment that I done performance, that moment that I didn't present myself, but I present a body, mm. universal body. It doesn't matter if I am fat or skinny or old or young. I didn't care. This was the body. This was the content. All of this fear disappeared like never being there. Do you think you're an introvert? 
Yeah, you know, and even now when you're thinking, you know, if I have to take off my clothes in the front of friends in the house, I will never do. But if I am naked in the front of public, I don't care. It is incredible because it's not me who who is there. Mm-hmm. It's the a body who I present. It's a concept I present. And that kind of twist is, is like super me doing something for the public, giving them everything. And if I'm at home, I'm too shy. So with the artist as present, is it you who are present or the body of the artist? You know, it's interesting. I think in the artist's presence is evolution of everything. Artist's presence is when I really mature mm. that I have body and soul and everything I give there. There was nothing. There was not one molecule of energy that I didn't give. And I also show my vulnerability to the public. And this is something where we connect, that you see a vulnerable, you're a human being. That's very important. You're not kind of superhero. You're just human. How did you prepare for the artist's present physically? I mean, did you drink a lot of water or, I mean, when did you eat? I prepare for artist's present entire year, like astronaut going on the moon or somewhere. I had entire year to change my metabolism, but only eating in the night and drinking water and sleeping enough that then during the day I don't need to move, not go to the bathroom, not eat anything, that the sugar level is stable. It's one year preparation, pure did, one year. Did you know how to do that or did you ask I had, for help? Oh, I had to ask for the help. I had a nutritionist. I asked for help. This to do what I've done is without this preparation would be impossible. I don't want to embarrass the real Marina Abramovich, but you are a very beautiful woman. And it's intriguing to me that you didn't feel beautiful as a teenager. You felt awkward and you had these orthopedic totally shoes. Totally horrible. Yeah. How do you feel about your physical presence now? Do you feel that you grew into it? Are you at peace with how you look? Okay, can I tell you a little story? Please. All right. Again, something like, I don't remember, 14, 15 years old. I hate my nose. I had such a big nose on the baby face. And I absolutely want to have Bridget Bardo nose. The Bridget Bardo was ideal. I took every photograph of Bridget Bardo, straight, left side, right side, you know, whatever. And I showed to my mother. And every time I asked her if, if I can go to do the, my nose, she would slap my face and the conversation was ending there. Then I developed a perfect plan. On the Sunday, my mother was visiting some friends and father was playing chess somewhere. They had this big matrimonial bed with very sharp edges. I put all the photographs of Bridget Bard in my pocket. I go to the bedroom and the idea was to spin around as fast as I can. I fall on the edge of the bed. I break my nose. I have to go to hospital to fix it. I have Bridget Bard the photographs already, so I just show to the doctor and everything is perfect. So I went to bedroom, I spin around, I fail, and I miss the nose, and I cut my chin really badly. I fall on the ground, bleeding, all photographs of Bridget Bardo on the ground. My mother entered the space. She plasmed me, you know, slapped me, brought me to hospital to put stitches, end of the story. So I am so happy that this didn't work because my nose on my face really fits perfectly now. Mm. So I feel much more confidence. And it's so strange that I've done so many 
cover pages right now for the show, you know, for the five cover pages for different magazines. They're coming. I am the woman of the year for the Carpus Bazaar this year, by the way. I think it's coming tomorrow, the cover. Then, you know, that when the, the girls were the 15 and 16 taking cover, I'm 77 in November, and I'm the cover of the magazine. Wow, <laughs> that's a big progress. I'm enjoying every moment of my life right now. That's wonderful. In a way, that Bridget Bardot and the bed story it's your first piece of performance art and then oh, yeah i don't know but she aged not that great i'm super happy i didn't do my nose <laughs> she's too angry <laughs> she's too angry yeah she's always been angry do you think anger ages you yes i think that soul have to show on the face you know it's really interesting the old age how actually is beautiful because you have the wisdom mm. and i never wanted to be 30 and 40 i suffered too much I like the real old age, the only important healthy old age, not sick old age. When you're healthy and old age, you enjoy every second because you understand that life is a miracle. Yes. I want to ask you a bit about communism and how you think it has affected your work. Oh, my God, a lot. I, you know, thinking of where I come from, I think it's such a strange mixture of everything. But the communism, what is important, it, about the communism, it was that they really believe that you have to give your private life and everything you have for the cause. Cause is more important than anything else. So that kind of determination and that the cause you can't doubt. And I am really lucky that very early I have found my medium, which is performance, and I never doubted. So I never spent energy to look for something else. This was it, and I just continue. And I continue now 55 years, and finally performance became mainstream art. So if I will just kind of die right now in this studio, <laughs> I hope not, then I was thinking what I'm going to be remembered for. The one number one that I really put my entire life to create platform the performance art, it's mainstream art. I also put incredible attention into my institute, you know, the long duration of performance art, how to teach them doing it. Because when you do something one hour, two hours, you still don't go to true self. Mm -hmm. But if you do something one month, two months, 20 hours, you can't pretend, you can't act. It's something else happened. You actually show your true self and you connect with the public. So the public grow and you grow and it's transcendental. So this is what I'm teaching with the Bramwich method and everything else. And then I also invent something, reperforms, that all pieces of art, not just mine, but historical pieces can be reperformed and give them new life, which many of my generations are against it because they say I will never give my art to anybody. But I think it's selfish. I think you should really see how young children can perform your work. Like right now in this exhibition, I have very, very difficult pieces to perform, House with Ocean View. There are three women performing it. Each of them, the wonderful artists of their own, Kira O'Reilly, the British artist, Amanda Cogan, the Irish artist, and uh, the Elke Luton, the Belgium artist. They have to be there 12 days with absolutely nothing but water on the platform day and night. It's not easy pieces to do. And for me, it would be so emotional to see them doing it because it looked like that my life and my work living without me. And, you know, it's much better to see when you're alive and when you're when it's going to happen anyway when you're not. Yeah. So it's, it's really very transformative to see that work is living without you. You mentioned the transcendence and the truth of something becoming ever more potent and available the more time you spend with it. 
And there is this real spiritual bent to your work. And I know that you are a practitioner of yoga. You do yoga and you meditate. And I wonder if we could go back to that idea of purpose and life purpose. Do you believe that your life has a purpose? And if you do, have you fulfilled it? <laughs> Once I went to Amazon to meet a shaman, very old lady, and uh, you know, she looked at me and she said, "Oh, you don't come from this planet. You come from the another galaxy. Your DNA is galactic, and uh, you're here on purpose in this planet." And I was so interested. Okay, you know, I I believe in everything. So I say, "Okay, what's my purpose?" And she said, "Your purpose is to teach how to transcend pain to the humans." And then I really think that's not so bad. I'm always about elevating human spirit. That's my really main thing with work. You know, my work, you don't need to read about it. My work, you have to feel it. It's all emotional. You have to feel in your body. You have to feel in your guts. This is why the reaction of my work is so many people cry all the time. There is something there that it's energy, and energy is immaterial. It's not something that you have painting, you put the nail on the wall, you hang the painting, and that's there. This is so immaterial. It's time-based. You see it, you experience it, and it's all what you have, nothing else. On that note of being from another planet, I was going to ask you about how you feel now that Yugoslavia no longer exists and that you are stateless in, in many respects. But perhaps that fits you perfectly. <laughs> you know, I always consider planet, the, you know, as my studio. And I love that kind of nomadic. I think I'm true nomad, really. The most nomadic, you never can see anybody than me. You know, I just, the, the moment when I left Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia, I never stopped actually traveling. You know, I live with Aborigines, Central Australia, with two tribes one entire year. I have connection with the Tibetan community more than 25 years. I went to study shamanism in South America. Everything interests me, but what interests me the most is ancient culture. They have so much knowledge about body and mind that we don't, because we really fucked up us with the technology. We know our technology makes us invalids. We don't think about intuition. We don't think about the meanings of the dreams. We don't think about the telepathy. We just don't do use any of this. Hmm. But I do. Yes. <laughs> I, I learn. <laughs> you started painting your dreams, didn't you, when you were 14? That's how yeah. you started painting. And do you still have very vivid dreams? Yes. Do you still paint them? No, I don't. I don't paint. I just interpret in my dreams. My grandmother helped me a lot in this. We have gone through your first two failures. So the communist parade, the chessboards, and now we come to your third failure, which is making positive zero. It was a theater piece, wasn't it? So Positive Zero, it was a, a very ambitious piece. This was the time in my collaboration with Ulay, and we actually put the first time these two different tribes, the Tibetan, the monks, and the Aborigine, the medicine people, medicine men, into actually theater piece. It was more like theater piece, but was also inspired by tarot cards and so many other, other kind of esoteric uh, ideas. And I think uh, we never made theater piece before. And so we had the audience, we had the stage. And I remember the moment we start working and doing, because as we know, we are not rehearsing much. I understood this is the biggest bullshit I just am doing right now in the front of the public. Public is there. I can't stop because, <laughs> you know, they pay the tickets to see us. And, oh, God, this was a hell. I remember we went through this whole thing. 
I got sick, I got temperature during the piece already, and it, I really was physically sick. I knew it was not good. And it was such an interesting, you know, I learned so much from that, that actually when you know something is, and you're really failing in the front of audience and you can't reverse it and can't change it, it really makes you physically sick. It was big failure. Did other people think it was a failure? I don't care. Okay. This is the thing. You know, I know. You know, this is the very important point. If I don't give 150%, 100% is not enough at all. 150% of everything I do, then for me, is failure. Anybody can say whatever they want, I know is not good. This is what is for me important. But if I give this 150% and I have the worst critic on the planet, I am fine because I know that I done my best. But when I didn't, that's what really makes me think that I really have big failure. And have you had any artistic failures since then where that experience has been replicated or does it teach you? I really teach me, yeah. Yeah. Really teach me. Because, you know, also with the performance art, it's really important that you accept also the unpredictable moment. So you're doing performance, electricity stop, somebody vomit, people interrupt the work, earthquake, whatever is a part of the work because you give that period of time. Mm. This is acceptance that I learned. Tell me about Ulai. You met in the 1970s on your shared birthday. 75, yeah, 1975. What was it like when you met? When I met Ulai, we was both invited to do performance for the Dutch TV. And Dutch TV in those days, the, the performance art was such a, in 1975, there was only one gallery in the world called the Apple Gallery, who actually was dealing with performance art at that time. And they was making the TV program on this. And I was only one from East Block actually invited. So when I arrived in the gallery, I met Ulai. And when I met him, he, we had incredible attraction. He finished his part of the, his program and I finished mine. And then all the crew, we had a dinner at the restaurant. And I said to them, I would like to everybody to offer the drink because it's my birthday. And he stand up and said, me also, it's my birthday. I said, I don't trust you, you know, prove it. And what he proved at that time, it was his notebook with calendar with the 30 November missing. It was shock for me. I opened my calendar, also 13 November is missing because I hate my birthday and he never liked his birthday. So the first thing when we get calendar, at least me, I turn always my birthday day off. This was his proof and my proof. We almost immediately fall in love and stay for 12 years together till we separate on Great Wall of China. I want to come back to that. Why do you hate your birthday? Oh, it's a long story. First of all, <laughs> my mother was telling me that I'm born 29 of November. 29 of November is the day of Republic of ex-Yugoslavia. This was the day that every good children, when they're born, they're born 29 of November, go to Tito. Tito will sit on his lap and he will give them candies and, and presents. And every time they came this day, I was not invited. And my mother would always say, because you are not good. And because I was never good for her, and there was never enough. And I was so always incredibly sad. Till later on, I find that my birth was never 29. It was always 30. Was she lying to you? She lied to me. And then I just hated my birthday anyway. I'm so sorry. <laughs> have you... I got over this. Don't worry. <laughs> have you... That sounds like a difficult upbringing. Have you forgiven her? Oh, I forgive her only after she died that I find her 
diaries, and if I read any page of this diary, even one page, my relation to her will be completely different. Because my mother emotionally, in so many ways, she was a national hero, by the way, and she suffered so much. And I understood... She was a resistance hero, wasn't she? She was a member of the, the Yugoslav the, Partisans. The, the, the title, yes, yeah. she, from the you know, Second World War yeah. hero. My father, too, both heroes. So anyway, my mother... It was such a difficult relationship with my father who left and so on. And I think that one of the reasons that she never kissed me in my life, when I asked her why she never kissed me, she said, of course, not to spoil you. So I understood only when I read in the diaries that she really wanted me to make me warrior. She wanted to make me warrior. And actually she succeeded. But I understood this when she died. Then I forgive to her. Ulai and you had this 12-year romantic and professional collaboration, the likes of which we've rarely seen. Some of the work you produced was astonishing. I'm thinking particularly of that piece where you were holding a bow and he was holding the arrow and it was pointed at your heart. both Sagittarius. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. And he could, any movement could have killed you. And your work explored that sense of power and gender. And it came to an end on the Great Wall of China And there is a longer story behind that, which I would love you to tell me, because that piece of art was eight years in the making, wasn't it? And at the beginning of those eight years, you were still in love. And we were supposed to marry on the Great Wall of China. And then in the meantime, everything started falling apart. It was really complicated. You know, falling apart was, was just pretty much the kind of ordinary reasons. You know, we become this kind of power couple in art. We start showing in every museum in the world. We start selling out Polaroids. So we was not poor anymore because we lived just in the car, which was the happiest period anyway, when we it was penniless. So I think that all the pressure, he could not deal with that. And anyway, he became a very unfaithful. And it was hurting. And the last, actually all happened last three years. I can say that that definitely, you know, nine years we was happy. And then the three years on the end of our relationship it was terrible because he went back to drinking that he didn't drink during our relationship. You know, I would go to gym and we would come back from the bar. Didn't really work. This is the failure I never talked about, but we can go back to that failure. I was so incredibly shame to say even to my best friends that our relationship don't work. So I was pretending that everything is fine. That was killing me because, you know, I was thinking working together is so much more powerful, producing two people, one work of art, which we call that self, not female, not male, but that kind of third energy. And that I was thinking this is forever. And, uh, and I realized that actually work only for a certain period of time and doesn't work anymore. And it didn't work. And I could not admit. And for three years, I could not admit. Till really came to this point that that walk of China was breaking point. And then we say we're going to separate and say goodbye. So it was eight years in the making because it took that long to get permissions from the Chinese years, yeah. government. Before we get to the actual walk, it's interesting to me that fidelity was important to you. There's a slight contradiction there, because at the beginning we were talking about your need for freedom, but you've also said to me that rules are important. In through that, in instructions. Instruct, okay. So are rules important because within those rules you can have the freedom? Yes, okay. because you have the, for every performance have to be strict rules that, yes. you, that you absolutely right. have to follow. If I say to myself, I will sit uh, three months in the museum every day, I'm going to do that, no matter what. 
That is very important. The commitment, you know, otherwise too much freedom is actually doesn't bring any result. <laughs> at all. Yes. Too much freedom is the opposite of liberation yes. in many ways. Yeah. So is that the same for your romantic relationship? Yeah, then, yeah. Right. There needed to be commitment and rules so that within that you could have freedom yeah, and trust. But, but also in the relationship we had to trust. To me, the kind of uh, trust was really important. So his infidelity was very hard for me. Mm. You walk from opposite ends of the Great Wall of China and you can watch this on YouTube and it is so moving. He's wearing blue, you're wearing red and you meet in this central point after months and months of walking. How many kilometers was it? 2,500? 2,500 each. Okay. And you meet in the middle and what happens? I cry and cry and cry. And it was the moment that it's the end. We, we, we literally walk towards the end. And end of something which was beautiful and difficult and emotional and everything. You know, every relation of true love is always full of pain. Mm. And that's no way out. <laughs> every separation, it was very hard for me. At that time when we split, I was exactly 40 years old. He was 43. It was the first time in my life that I stopped having relations with men I love, but I also didn't have my work. This was the worst part. I could not go back to my work because for 12 years we signed work together and everything we done was just one work. So I have to reinvent everything. I felt incredibly depressed, incredibly lonely. And what I done, I made a theater piece. I made a theater piece called the Biography Remix. The only way is to play my life in the front of audience and share that pain with the audience. Mm. And there is a moment when I say goodbye to Ulai in that piece. And he's sitting in the audience with his new wife, Chinese, at that time, and I'm saying goodbye to him. This was the way how I could deal with the pain, by staging it in the front of audience. And in front of him. Yeah. And that Chinese woman, his wife, was the translator, wasn't she? The translator she? that he got pregnant. And when we met, he said, what are you going to do? She's pregnant. I said, I don't give a shit what you can do, whatever fuck. Let me out of it. Sorry for the language. You know, no. I, I just wanted to go to start my new life. I love swearing. Never apologize for swearing. <laughs> I, I like, what then? You know, what I can do? This podcast, as I told you, was born out of heartbreak. I think heartbreak is such a specific kind of grief. It's a very difficult thing to go through. And a lot of people listening will potentially be dealing with that. What advice would you give them as someone who has endured the profound depths of heartbreak? How do oh you my God, I'm such an expert in heartbreak. <laughs> Dr. Abramovich yes. advice for you. Agony Aunt Abramovich. <laughs> okay. Dr. Abramovich has, you know, first of all, just cry, mm -hmm. cry, cry is such a good healing thing. And you know, and I had a heartbreak, it was impossible. My friends could not even talk to me about anything except about my problems. I was sick and tired talking myself about my problems. I was crying in supermarket, I was crying in the taxis, I was crying on the street, I was, I just was like so, so, I could not eat, I could not sleep. All of this is only way to do it is have a grief and go through it. And then it comes really the moment that everything stops. And you could not even believe that he was in love with that kind of person in the first place, or whoever it is. Yes. No, honestly, you have to let it grieve, go through it. When you look back now, are you grateful for those years of collaboration with Ulai, both professional and personal? We made a great work together. I am happy with every moment. Also the, the bad moments. As we say, bad moments are important. You know, if you read history of art, 
you know that nobody make any work from happiness. Mm. My theory, the more fucked up childhood you have, the better artists you get because there's so much space and ideas to work with. The happiness is not productive. Happiness is a state that you don't want to change. You just be happy. It's wonderful. Nobody you know, is against happiness. But when really difficult time comes, this is when you really change. This is when you really grow. This is where you really learn. Are you happy now? Right now, I'm really worried. Actually, I'm happy. Yes. <laughs> You're worried about being happy. Yeah, I, I have to say, that first of all, I went through the really dead experience just in March. And, you know, getting life out of this and being sitting here in front of you and having this huge show that I have to run to install, by the way. We, you know, I have to, I have to work soon. It's just incredible. I'm so grateful. 255 years never having women in this space. It's a huge responsibility. And yeah. I really like to do my best. And I'm making this wonderful tea party only for women. I read about this. Thing. And, yes. you know, you're invited. Please come. Please can I come? And absolutely. <laughs> We're going to have some men serving the tea, I think. Excellent. You know, I want to have, you know, a transgender woman. I want to have, you know, the women in science, in technology, mm. artists, young musicians. Just really nice group of women because Monday is when I'm doing it is that the museum is closed so I can have tea party and I can show the show to them and just, you know, spend some good time and celebrate that this space actually should be just the beginning of the great women artists who should be there in the first place. A wonderful note to end on and it brings me to my final question, which is about gender. A lot of what we've been talking about is to do with the body and also to do with transcendence. And we mentioned your collaboration with Ulai and the fact that you were this third state, almost this third energy. How do you feel about being a woman? What does that mean to you, if anything? You know, that's so complicated in my case, because in so many ways I said that I'm not feminist, because I have such a strong mother, you know, I was rebelling her all the time, <laughs> not the man, but the mother. <laughs> but it's a very different period I come from. I say, I always believe that art doesn't have gender, doesn't matter who is making it, it's just two categories, good art, bad art, that's it. But I feel very much female as a woman, and to me, I always feel that we have this incredible power because we can conceive life in our bodies. doesn't matter if we do it or not, but just that incredible power that we have. And we give this power voluntarily to the men. I don't know from the centuries. I have no idea why, but definitely we are the ones who have the power. We always did. We only have to realize and start really being conscious of that. Marina Abramovich, I feel not only honoured that you have come on my podcast in person, <laughs> but I feel honoured to live in a time when you are creating art and teaching us all what it is to be human. Thank you so, so much on behalf of me, but also on behalf of everyone whose souls you have touched. You are an amazing person and I have loved this conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.